Welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. All right. Good morning. Welcome back to another edition of Coffee and Conservation. I am here with Dr. Shannon Westlake, who is a um, was a PhD student in the in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture here at Mississippi State University, and has recently finished her dissertation. So she's going to be moving on soon, but glad to get her on before <laughs> she leaves. I actually served on her committee, so. Um, so I've got to watch her, her dissertation evolve over the last few years. So thanks for being here this morning. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Um, I'm excited for this conversation today, all of these, because uh, our conversations come easy and we have plenty to talk about, which is always makes it more fun. Um, but tell our audience a little bit about your background, because in this first episode this morning, we're getting into pollinator conservation and how folks might get started with pollinator conservation, which is a huge topic in conservation right now um, in the U.S. and globally. Um, so much to talk about, but uh, it's it's pretty specific area as well in conservation. So I, I always find it fascinating how folks get to where they are uh, in their journey. So if you could just start with telling your audi- audience a little bit about how you came into your current posi- position in studying pollinator conservation. Yeah, sure. Um, I have a non-traditional path as far as academia goes, but I guess my love for pollination and insects and all that started young. I was always outside running around chasing butterflies and bees, taking pictures of them, you know, hugging trees and climbing them. So that evolved into going to an undergraduate school, SUNY Potsdam in upstate, upstate New York, to study biology, just to understand a little bit more about that. And during my time there, I took an entomology course. And during that, we had to, one of our labs, our professor sent us out in the field to go collect insects and see if we could identify them, and actually came across a monarch caterpillar. And I knew what it was, but I didn't know too much about it. So we brought it back to the lab and we watched it go through its whole transformation process. And we had this releasing ceremony and it was just like, cool. It obviously imprinted on my life. Uh, But at that point, you know, a little while later, I graduated and I had that fun existential crisis of what am I going to be when I grow up still? Uh, I still have that. Oh, still daily. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I moved back home, and I actually started working in technology. I started working for Corning Incorporated uh, as a research technician. So I didn't really use a ton of my biology, but used some of the other, you know, physical sciences and chemistry and things like that, and learned a lot on the job. But I worked there for about six years, and during that, I realized I really wanted to get back to the field of conservation. I just really wanted to get more connected with nature. So I started doing my master's online, which was really neat. It was a a bioregion approach. So you actually used your own physical environment as your lab. So I was able to do different experiments and really get to know my home way deeper than I ever did growing up there. 
And this was the Finger Lakes region in upstate New York. And one of my projects was obviously my master's thesis. And I had to put together a project for that. And so what I wanted to focus on was pollinator conservation, because I had really started getting deeper into pollinator knowledge and things like that during my studies. And I worked with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and we worked in a uh, urban area in upstate New York looking at pollinator conservation. So we actually worked with the community center to create both pollinator and food gardens in this area. And it was a really neat experience. And from that, I was able to come down here to Mississippi State to continue those studies because what I really wanted to look at is coming from a rural area in upstate New York, I wanted to get back to that and understanding private landowners and what they're facing and how we can get them more involved with conservation and again for pollinators. So that's kind of what led me here to do the study here. Yeah, that's really, that is more of a non-traditional path, but it's it's still so fun to be able to, f- as you move through the graduate degrees, um, kind of follow what you're interested in, even if you can, because you can never usually plan a graduate, a series of graduate programs exactly how you want it to be, because you have to be somewhat opportunistic at mm-hmm. the same time to get into a program um, that you're able to follow kind of this evolving pathway of, of getting in back into conservation uh, and figuring out two through your master's thesis what resources were available in your local community because that's usually um, something most people don't know about mm-hmm. about the actual conservation that's happening in their communities which groups are doing different types of conservation because um, most of them are somewhat some of them are agency-based, but some of them are really grassroots-based, so they're a little under the radar, and you have to kind of piece together who's doing what, who's who's invo- involved in what, which can take some time mm-hmm. to put those pieces together. Um, yes, and so all of that brought you down here to Mississippi State University, um, and you've had a really successful dissertation project, which is exciting, um, all geared around pollinator conservation and piecing out um, those landowner perspectives and and their awareness, knowledge. We'll get into that kind of stuff um, in the next episode, uh, the nuts and bolts of the human dimensions of the conserva- pollinator conservation. But just so we can like all be on the same page with our audience, uh, let's talk about what pollinator conservation is, what that looks like, what that means, and why it's important right now at both local and kind of global scales. Sure. Great question. And it's one I get often. A lot of times when people come to one of my talks or whatever, they assume I'm going to be talking about honeybees because most people attribute, you know, pollinator conservation or pollinators to honeybees. And for good reason. uh, But honeybees are actually non-native to the United States. So a lot of the efforts and focus of pollinator conservation are targeted more toward the native pollinators. And all the efforts and things that we promote through that type of pollinator conservation will still benefit honeybees because it's things like providing more habitat and reducing chemical use. But really the nuts and bolts of pollinator conservation is the protection of these native pollinators and their habitat. So these pollinators uh, are animal pollinators and they're helping either food systems or just flowering plant species. And this is huge both at a local and global scale because over 75% of the world's flowering plant species are dependent on these animal pollinator systems. And animal pollinators can be birds, bats, bees, but the majority of them are actually insects, which is why you see most of the focus on like bees and butterflies and things of that nature. And even, you know, anybody should be in touch 
with this because about a third of the bites of food eaten each day come from an animal pollinated food. And there are many foods that are dependent directly on pollinator systems. And then there are some that are benefited either in quality or quantity. So if you enjoy eating like tomatoes or drinking coffee, these types of things, they get better when they have these animal pollinators in their systems. So this benefits people, you know, from a food standpoint, everybody needs to eat, but also aesthetically, like if you like looking out at a field of wildflowers or you like seeing flowering trees or things of that nature. And then also potentially if you're a hunter, a lot of the game species that we have like turkey or quail or things like that rely on the insect larval stages so these caterpillars and things like that of butterflies they make up a big part of their diet so they rely on these types of species as well so it's all about biodiversity so again enjoying what you're enjoy out in nature whether it's seeing these flowering trees or hunting quail or just hearing different bird species Uh, there is a study done by dr doug talamy looking at Uh, chickadees in their clutches and he found that it was between I think six and ten thousand caterpillars are required to raise a single clutch of chickadees so even if you're a birder and you love going out there and hearing songbirds like a lot of those rely on these insect species so again these are your local impacts and your global impacts because there's a lot of concern about food security globally of people having access to these highly nutritious foods that need these pollinators so it really does affect everybody every day yeah that was a great overview of what pollinator conservation is and protecting them and why it's important and and as you laid out beautifully yeah these organisms are just a critical group that provides ecosystem services in a lot of different directions whether it's to humans or to nature or to other species that they're they're really uh, a critical group in the environment that um warrant as much as attention as they're getting right now in terms of needing protection and maintaining specific populations to provide these ecosystem services. So what are, you talked about protecting their habitat and protecting them in in general as species. What are those basic elements of pollinator conservation? Well, pollinators themselves, you know, they're insects, so people don't normally say, oh, they're wildlife, but they are, especially uh, native pollinators, they're wildlife. We're not managing them. They're out there growing and doing their thing on their own. Um, So they require just the same elements other wildlife species do as far as food and shelter and cover and space and water and things like that. So as far as food, different pollinators require different things, but for the most part, they need flowering species. So that's why a lot of pollinator conservation conservation efforts promote planting these various wildflower species and they want to promote native as well because these native pollinators and these native plants literally grew and evolved together so they flower at the time they need to be flowering when you know the pollinators are more active so that's why native is mostly promoted Um, we also need shelter so shelter can come in from the form of what we call nesting habitat so some species need Uh, various things. Again, with honeybees, we're also thinking about, well, they live in boxes. Well, native pollinators don't. And a lot of bee species, the majority actually, are solitary and they can be ground nesters. So having some uh, space on your ground, some bare ground, they can nest in that. They can also nest in some like dead twigs and stalks and things like that. that. So having that available. Um, And then some 
uh, pollinator species and the butterfly side of it, they have what we call, they need what they call host plants. So there's certain plants that these species need to eat to feed their caterpillar stage. Like the most notorious one is monarchs, of course, and milkweed. So if you want monarchs on your property, we need to have milkweed there because that's the only plant their caterpillars will eat. So it's trying to pay attention to, you know, if you want to have these on your landscape, what species are you trying to support? And then what types of plants or habitat do they need in particular? But many are generalists. So as long as you have, you know, some good bare ground around and you have these wildflowers and you you also really want to uh, reduce your chemical use. So there's a lot of issues there with chemicals. Um, Even if you're not, if they're not insecticides, maybe they're herbicides, try to use a more targeted one versus broad spectrum because you can be killing the food species that these pollinators need. And even if you're not spraying directly on those wildflowers, if you're using them on other parts of your property, we can have chemical drift, which can then again negatively impact these species as well. So those are the two biggest issues that we're having with habitat loss and chemical use. So targeting that and trying to adjust your behaviors for that will definitely support pollinators. I'm glad you mentioned that at the at the end there too, because that chemical component is important, but it's also somewhat the easiest, somewhat the easiest thing to do because mm-hmm. it's a passive form of conservation. Like you're literally not doing something mm-hmm. rather than having to actively do something, right? Which makes it easier for everyone to participate because it's not an extra thing you have to do. It's just right. something that you're kind of cutting out, right? Which of course, if you're prov- if you're wanting to to provide habitat and diverse native species. You know, you'd probably naturally be cutting out some of that herbicide use depending on what phase of establishment you're in and Mm -hmm. trying to either, depending on if you're trying to create and cultivate a stand of native plants, switching from uh, maybe a lawn system that Mm -hmm. hasn't established, let's say here in the South, a lot of folks have bahia grass. And it can be particularly difficult to transition from that to Mm -hmm. back to native species because the lawn species of bahia can become so um, somewhat invasive itself. I don't think invasive is the right word, but persistent mm-hmm. uh, and difficult to transition back to native species, which is kind of interesting because at least in my mind too, or other folks that might want to do conservation, it's like, oh, we just go buy seed and we put it out and then <laughs> yeah, and then we have an establishment of native plants and it's that simple. But it when you actually look at how difficult it is to reestablish native species in um, in a landscape that's been managed for maybe just a green lawn, it can be more difficult than you want it to be. And it can take multiple years mm-hmm. of phasing out the bahia grass or whatever it may be to reestablish those native plants. Um, so we'll get into that a little bit more, but I just wanted to touch on that for audience that it it's always it's always nice to have something that's easy to do and at the same time um establishing conservation can take more time than than us especially as conservationists we want to have an immediate impact Mm -hmm. uh than we want it to take so just to consider that and I like what you mentioned about passive also. So that's one thing often when we're talking about efforts, we're talking about active efforts. So, you know, you're actively going and planting or you're actively going and doing something else. But there are some good passive practices, too, whether it's just not using chemicals or using something else or reducing your mowing frequency can also be beneficial, especially in the fall when pollinators really need those dead stalks to nest in over winter or something like that. Like leave it leave it growing, um, you know, and that we just need to change what we think is beautiful. <laughs> 
right. as far as like a manicured lawn doesn't have to be you know like quarter inch grass blades or whatever like and golf also course turf right exactly yeah I mean we can establish some beautiful habitat on our property but we just need to kind of change the social norm of you know what that is um, and so there's these passive practices even like you know I joked in a previous article that I wrote about it's not lazy if you leave a, leave a brush pile just say you're doing it for pollinators you know That's a good point. <laughs> everybody needs an excuse sometimes too. right like. right so there's some simple more passive stuff that we can do that is still going to benefit them as well yeah I like that that's great advice so what being on this topic already what are some things the average person can do to participate in pollinator conservation and when you did your master's, you were in an urban area, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe let's give some ideas for folks in urban areas and, and then those in rural areas because yeah. they'll have different opportunities. Yeah. The basics are pretty much the same. It's just as far as the scale, I guess, if you're looking at urban versus rural. So, again, you want to try to reduce that chemical use as much as, much as possible. And then you also want to provide some sort of habitat. So even in an urban area, for us, we had just a small community grounds at the community center. And so we created, I think they were like 300 square foot gardens. So they weren't massive by any means, but they were decent size. And that's beneficial because if you're in an urban area, maybe you don't have much of a yard, but you can come volunteer there or you can help plant or you can help do things like that. So you're still getting outside, you're still supporting pollinators. But even things as small as window boxes, or if you'd like to grow herbs, some of those flower you know, that can still be a food source for these pollinators and you're getting the benefit from what they're pollinating. So that can be really easy to do in an urban location. Um, And then upscaling that once you get rural, still providing those habitats. So whether it's a field border or just a larger garden creation, or maybe you want to restore a whole field back to wildflower plantings. Of course, that's going to take a lot of time. Um, We don't get to have the instant gratification when it goes to re-vegging and going back to native vegetation. But that's where the commitment comes in. And if people are really dedicated to conservation, they're going to be willing to put the effort in. But we need to realize it's not just throwing the seeds and they're going to look great in three months. You know, it's going to take some time. Site preparation is essential for trying to restore native vegetation on the landscape because we have seed banks in the ground that have a lot of other seeds. So even if you destroy what's there that you see, um, there's still seeds that are going to help that are going to grow and potentially outcompete what you're planting for these native vegetations. So it's trying to, you know, adjust your expectations of what it's going to look like and then just be in it for the long haul. That's what I recommend to people who often come to me for recommendations. I just say, be ready. Like if you're going to be putting this time and this effort in, you want to see it through. So mm-hmm. just, you know, know that this is going to take probably a few years for these larger plantings, but not so much in an urban area. I mean, again, if you're just planting some smaller native wildflowers in a small garden or doing a window box. I mean, you'll see the fruits of your labor quite quickly there. And you'll also see pollinators. All of a sudden, you'll see insects show up, you know, things that you hadn't seen before. Like the garden that we planted in upstate New York, out of nowhere, we saw insects literally like the next week. The students were thrilled. They were able to come out and we were chasing butterflies and bees and they just loved seeing them. So you do get a little instant gratification with this type of stuff, which can be rewarding and, you know, keep you going, keep working on it. Yeah. Seeing the effects of it can definitely help motivate folks to keep going. I like what you mentioned about volunteering, especially fun Mm -hmm. fact about me, despite being a scientist and researcher, I do not have a green thumb. (laughs) Like I really like instant gratification when it comes to planting things, or maybe I overcare for my plants and I like over water (laughs) them or something. Um, But volunteering is such a great way to actually not spend any of your own resources 
uh, pitching in the community. And then you also get like free um, mentoring essentially into and, and learning and training in a field like this that maybe you're not familiar with, especially if it is gardening or larger landscape um, and larger landscape management. And I know you've helped host a number of different um, restorations while you've been on campus, which mm-hmm. are gr- such great opportunities for folks to just start seeing and being a part of what restoration looks like mm-hmm. from small scales to large scales without having that immediate investment of your own resources. So maybe you can learn a few things and then transition to maybe now I want to have my own pollinator garden or, or whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. And those are absolutely ideal. That was one thing that I feel was really unique to my master's project that I worked on. Because same as you, like growing up, I'm like, I have a black thumb. I can't grow anything. And so when I was talking to my sister about getting a pollinator it's conservation. She's like, uh, and I'm just like, I'll figure this out. <laughs> but I was able to put together this awesome team in, in that uh, town. Auburn, New York, I was able to connect with a local permaculture expert. So it was just cool to bring him in because then we were able to collaborate and I could bring the pollinator, you know, science side of it. And he was able to bring the permaculture plant side of it. And I just learned so much from working with these people. And one thing, you know, people are always hesitant because they assume I have a black thumb. I don't know how to do this. I don't know if I'll like doing this. Volunteering is perfect because Mm -hmm. you're still helping. You're still getting pollinator conservation Uh, efforts done in habitat on the landscape and then you're learning so maybe you learn wow this isn't that hard or I love those flowers I have those on my property I'm going to grow more of them I didn't know that that this was part of that effort so getting involved with that and then growing a network of people that are interested in it is just great momentum to keep having more of these efforts on the landscape yes fantastic that is such great advice So thank you for coming on this morning. And in our next conversation, next episode, we're going to be talking about the human dimensions of pollinator conservation. So we're going to be switching gears, which I'm also very excited about because social science is so, so fascinating. It's so fascinating. (laughs) I love to geek out with it. All right. Thanks for joining us today. And we'll catch you all in our next episode. As always, you can find more information on our website or in the show notes after the show. And we always want to acknowledge and thank our primary sponsor, the Mississippi Natural Resources Conservation Service, for their support of this podcast. Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu. Dot edu.